0: All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, the London is Blue podcast, hopefully your favorite Chelsea podcast. We're coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, home,
1: home of the Raleigh Blues, the Raleigh-Durham Blues, and a wonderful... Well, you, almost, you almost screwed that one up, didn't you? They've just been our hosts for the last couple of days. They have been. RDU Blues, what up?
0: We're going to have to excuse a little bit because it is 11.52 p.m. <laughs> we are back at the hotel. Dan here alongside Nick. No Brandon because he has not yet made his way on the tour. We're going to sync up with him in Philadelphia. But we just watched Chelsea demolish the FX docuseries stars <laughs> Rexham and Company, led by Robin Ryan, and boy, oh boy, it was sweet. And Nick, I feel like it's definitely time for some overreaction theater about just how well Chelsea are going to do this season. We don't have to get into that, but I think we want to let people know this is a bit of a different type of episode yep. when we're live. We try to get a little bit more of the banter in, get a little bit more about what we got a chance to see with our own eyes versus when we can watch it back multiple times. And we did include a little bit of a special second half of the episode that I think people are going to be really excited about.
1: Yeah. We recorded uh, first time uh, with Ben Jacobs earlier and talked about everything from the uh, front line and who will sco- score goals for Chelsea to the new uh, developments with the Stanford bridge redevelopment. And so there's a lot of really good stuff in the back half of the show. We're going to start off though, with a little bit of, of Chelsea Wrexham, right? This is the first uh, time that we've seen the blues since a very disappointing campaign last season. Uh, Chelsea do win five, nothing with goals from Ian Mottson in the third minute and 42nd minute. Uh, Connor Gallagher in the 80th minute, Christopher and in the 90th minute. And then Ben Chilwell with a cheeky little chip in the 90th minute, plus three Chelsea, 65% possession to Rexham's 35 expected. Obviously Chelsea, 11 shots, five on target, Rexham 11 shots, one on target. The, the one that they kind of whiffed there, uh, Chelsea had more fouls and a ton more lineup changes uh, than Wrexham did we're not going to go through every single player uh, that that played but uh, it was a really interesting way to start the uh the the, the season right you you had kind of a, a mishmash lineup of a bunch of young players Dan and uh, it was really interesting to kind of see who was going to stand out in that group
0: yeah one of the players that had probably the best night in Ian Matson you know 45 minutes
1: scores two goals starts on the left wing not
0: not as a left back or not even a left wing back so definitely not in the position that he would normally be in but just showing a level of class and composure particularly some of the partnership he had with nico jackson which was really really good to see as well he looked sharp found himself in good positions and took great shots when the ball was at his feet so i think in general if you're looking at a, a player of the match or Dan of the match, he, for the first half, absolutely locked. No
1: questions. He was the guy. He Yeah, he was just the Dan of the match, period. You know, I, I look at the lineup and the way that we rolled out there. Um, what I learned about Matson tonight is that there's some potential positional flexibility there. I mean, he's not just a... Uh, a defensive left back right all Chelsea left backs bomb up and down the left wing for us and uh and he's one of them and so maybe he gets a run out in some of these Carabao Cup and FA Cup games as a left winger and and maybe we see him do that
0: i mean he scored for burnley last year he scored and assisted previously so it's not unexpected that he was going to be able to contribute and as we think about where his real challenge is going to be is the logjam with players in, in that position with Ben Chilwell, who again came on later in the game and looked bright in his cameo, looked back to full fitness. And then Mark Cucurea who went off and then came back on through an agreement with the other side to allow him to come back on for the last six minutes or so of the match.
1: Yeah. We've never seen that. Our journalist friends have never seen that, but apparently uh, Trev was, uh, feeling pretty gassed. And so because of the limited squad numbers and defense that we had in this game, the Wrexham team agreed to allow Mark Kukure to come back on, which is a classy thing to do. And so, um, very, uh, interesting. We can say that, you know, we have a trivia question for the future, um, on that one, but I think overall in the first half, which was, I think uh, just to be fair, a lot more interesting to watch than the second half, uh, Chukumeca putting himself around really well. Andre Santos, Uh, controlling the game from midfield with some of his passing. Uh, Cassidy putting himself about and I think playing most of the game. And so this is a a team that obviously has a lot of work to do. This is not the full team that we're going to see, right? And so when I look at kind of like what stood out to me, some players stepped up, some players didn't. You know, I think generally the back line was pretty, you know, it was like a non-plus kind of performance from them. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And, uh, yeah, I, I felt pretty good about where we are at.
0: You did have Wrexham press initially in the first phase of the game to see what was available to him, what was on offer. And he, you saw him challenge some of the passing lanes and close them down. But ultimately, you know, players like Malagusto were able to work around it and advance the ball forward. I think if we're talking about just players on the rise. I think there's three players that I walk away with a better impression than I had walking into the game. Say Nick Jackson is one of those in the time that he was on the pitch. He definitely had a agility in the way that he played, his ability to press up and to cut through defenders, to make space for himself, to lay up others. It was a really, really strong performance from him. And then I think, Motson would have been number two, though we've talked about him, I think ad nauseum at this point. And if I'm looking at a third, I think it is Andre Santos. It is. It, it has I mean, to he be. is the one who looked very composed, was playing further forward, was getting an opportunity to really run the show. And and that was that was interesting. It was interesting the fact that this was a guy signed in January. We thought that we might be able to get him in into the team to let him be a first-team contributor last season. Couldn't get the work visa sorted, goes back to Santos, and then now is getting an opportunity to step up and really contribute in the early days of the Pochettino era.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a funny thing that uh, we got to see because we were in the mix zone after, but there was a, a Brazilian outlet who that called him and Angelo over to, uh, to have a a conversation and they were so joyous and loud. And it was funny because, uh, Trevo came over for a quick hit and it was so loud that I don't know if anyone who was talking to Trevo could actually hear what Trevo was saying, but they were just, it looked like they were having so much fun. And, you know, Angelo has a great assist laid on too, Mm -hmm. um, which is absolutely fantastic. And so you just, you know, again, it's the first game. You're playing League Two opposition, right? This is not at all where Chelsea is going to be tested. We're going to get a lot more on on Saturday against Brighton, right, in the uh, Moises Caicedo derby. Um, and, you know, I think for me, the players that didn't necessarily stand out or take their chance, I don't think Marrera necessarily did it for me. Um, I think Cassaday had some really high moments and some not – so high moments a terrible uh, yellow card that he took and you know I the goalkeepers didn't get tested so you don't really know what, what you got uh, and so Jamie, you're not
0: going to go in, into coming or Bergstrom you're not going to no, give any of them a rating for this one
1: I don't think so no but you know I think overall what, what I saw and what I think is a really good thing is that the team clearly is a lot more fit right and and this is the beginning of the season They're right? not all the way through the season yet. So there's a lot more putting themselves about. There's a lot more chasing down balls. You saw players who you know, sometimes would miss a pass to each other, who one would commit and go grab it and then recycle it. So all of that is good. After what we saw last year, all of that is a positive sign. Obviously, a lot more technical work to do with the ball. I think they've been doing a lot of strength and conditioning, Dan. And it's like, you know, once you get on the pitch and you start doing ball work, it's a whole different deal. And that's where Nkunku really looked lively in the handful of touches that he got at the end of the game. And I I was really impressed uh, with him and with Nick Jackson, with the runs they were making vertical runs through the defense. As long as someone could put a ball over the fucking top to him, we're going to score goals because they're, they're always open. Well, yeah, the golden cuckoo scored where he rounded the keeper
0: really got far wide to the right. And then was able to turn around and slot it in. Very, very good composure. Very excited to see how he continues to play. I think the opportunity now and maybe the questions that we're going to have. So if you have a question, like what are the two or three questions looking ahead to this weekend that you don't have an answer to right now? You feel like you're going to need to see more in the next 90 minutes. Because I think let's set the stage. Preseason is really about fitness. It's really about patterns. It's getting everybody up to the level and there is assessment that's happening through it. And it's maybe early to say this player doesn't have a future with the team this season, but I think it's fair to say based upon what I saw over 90 minutes or 45 minutes, I have more questions about this player than I do other players.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was difficult because we didn't see a whole lot of the big names tonight. Right. Um, I think if I had a question, it would be if Gallagher is really going to be a six or not. Um, Cause I guess, I guess, in the uh, six
0: being more in the deeper play yeah. role in the midfield position
1: it, it's always seemed like he's been more of like a forward like a, an advanced eight or a 10 and so it just seemed very awkward in the second half when he was back there like I, it didn't seem as crisp as as maybe what Andre Santos was putting out from a passing perspective like his angles didn't seem right um so that that's that's a big question I mean obviously we didn't see Enzo tonight we there is no Caicedo on the team yet knock on wood obviously but you know, I think that's a big question, right? Cassidy is not likely going to be a uh, start of the season um, number six for for Chelsea Football Club. Not saying he performed badly tonight or anything, but I think that area is still super uncertain.
0: So I think there's questions. I want to see uh, well, the question I would ask is, how is Sterling going to find his way into getting? the right type of involvement heading into this preseason to place a mark on a starting position. Now, do I think he would still end up starting against Liverpool even if he has a average preseason? He's highly likely. Do the name, do the understand of the Premier League, what we've heard from our journalist friends friends about how Pochettino really values the Premier League experience? I don't think he's going to line up with Matawake and Mudrick on match day one. It just doesn't feel like that is the winger pairing he's going to use even though we've drafted some lineups that look like that. So I think Sterling is a question mark for me heading in the next game to see how he performs against, you know, better competition in, in the second game.
1: Yeah, I think the other question is, what do you do at left back in this preseason? What is your methodology to grade Performances. Obviously, Ian Monson didn't play left back today, so I'm not saying like he he should be graded like that. But he's talented, man. And some of the composure that he showed on the ball, some of the passing that he made in, I it just, I I think as a player, I like his profile a lot. And of course, Ben Chilwell is the incumbent, right? It's going to be really hard to unseat him. But playing for that number two role is going to be critical. I don't think we saw a lot out of uh, Cucurea tonight that was super impressive. I think it was fine. No, no errors to be had, really, but nothing stand out either. What do you do there? Lewis Hall comes in in midfield, so maybe there's a shift happening there, but it's going to be really fascinating. Obviously, Reese James not here, not in the lineup tonight on the right-hand side. So Malagusto, welcome to Chelsea. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's a lot more questions that we're going to have throughout the remainder of preseason. So I think this, as our London's Blue podcast after dark, wraps up the first half of the episode and our last bit of conversation in Raleigh, in Chapel Hill, home of the RDU Blues, who've been amazing hosts. And I think I would just say, before we wrap on this section and transition our conversation with Ben, the amount of people we had a chance to meet today at, uh, Still Life, which is where the RDU Blues were meeting in, in before the match. Absolutely incredible. Just so thankful for anyone who walked up to us, who uh, bought us a shot, bought yeah. us a beverage. Uh, our friends from uh, Denver, Virginia, multiple places throughout the U.S. who just came up and had the nicest things to say. And that was Really, really appreciate it. We we can't thank you enough for listening. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to do that. We very much are happy to take a photo. There are a couple people asked, and I really appreciate them asking. But please, just force the photo on us. We'll absolutely take it with you.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's a very unreal thing to go through, and and we're... We're really happy to do it. Um, one last shout out to to Tiff, to Shell, to the rest of the RDE Blues. You guys were amazing hosts. Uh, I knew it was going to be a lot of fun down here. You guys uh, accelerated my expectations of, of what this tour could look like. And so despite some challenging circumstances, I think you guys put on one hell of a show, and we, we deeply, deeply appreciate it.
0: Well, Look, the ball is now in Philadelphia's court as we get an early flight today at time of (laughs) recording to get up there and get ready for what is going to be another fantastic run of content. We're looking forward to getting you some great information while we're there on the ground. But this is going to do it for the first half of the episode. So enjoy the conversation with Ben Jacobs. And I think Jake will probably say something about keeping the blue flag flying high at the end of the episode there.
1: Yeah, do the outro, Jake. Come on.
2: I will do the outro, Nick. And before that, I will also throw to the ads... Thank you so much to our sponsors, and we will be right back.
0: All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, the London is Blue podcast, and this is just a little bit of an excerpt that we're including in our Wrexham match review. So we're recording this after, well, we're recording before the match, but we're recording it after our first day here in Raleigh. We've got Nick with us as well, and a first-time... First, first cap. First-time guest on the podcast, or Ben.
2: Jacobs, sports broadcaster. There's pressure now, making my <laughs> debut. Great to be here.
0: <laughs> we're, uh, we're very excited you've been able to make some time. We know that uh, you're a little, little jet lagged at the moment, but we've gotten you some caffeine. We feel like we're in a better spot there. How has your
2: first US tour with Chelsea gone? The caffeine has helped, that's for sure. <laughs> mm. I'm desperately jet lagged. And I think that these tours are always really fun because it's an opportunity for the fans to interact. It's an opportunity for the players to meet people that have travelled far and wide. And now we get to see Pochettino and how he's going to line Chelsea up. So for me, it's been great so far. I think that the squad are definitely trying to bond with a lot of young, new faces. And that's going to be significant because obviously Pochettino has to work out how he can get leaders within the team. He needs a consistency of selection. He needs chemistry. And I think that this tour will help.
1: I mean what are your what are your thoughts so far? I mean this is a new era. Tons of new faces as you as you say. Pochettino a different type of manager than Chelsea have had maybe since Antonio Conte's first year. Thoughts on the start a couple of weeks in.
2: Well, I think Pochettino's got this sort of mix of charm and authority which we all want in life, don't we? And he just has it innately and that's kind of what I love about him and the Chelsea project needs to reflect that they have to get back this sort of serial winner mentality and that's perhaps the long-term goal and it's going to be a little bit harder I would have thought to actually develop but in the short term what we're definitely seeing is a lot of running that's number one in the first two weeks of this pre-season we're seeing youth so in the warm-up to Wrexham and I know this will go out after the match but it looked like in terms of how he was lining up the 11 we're going to see the likes of Cucurea and Nico Jackson in a very young 11 with the likes for example of Andre Santos and therefore, the gauntlet has almost been laid down for these young stars that are either new with high potential or bit part and have a chance to kind of make a new impression on Pochettino. So it's the open door policy for me that stood out in the early part of pre-season because it's very easy for someone like Pochettino with a big reputation and walking into a club like Chelsea with a lot of fractures, a lot of politics and obviously a poor season to try and just do it his way. And that would obviously be a sign of kind of autonomy, but he's been a little bit more humble he's listened perhaps more than he's spoken, and he's tried to integrate. And I think that's a really good sign because when he finally then does speak and act with authority in terms of style, in terms of selection, maybe even in terms of his relationship with the ownership group, it will carry more weight because he's not rushed into anything. And that for me is the overriding point so far.
0: Do you think this is similar to how Thomas Tuchel was viewed previously, goes to PSG, comes back and has a little bit of a different way or mentality in his approach that Pochettino is now from that PSG school of learning how to deal with a very hyper political club now has a, diff- a little bit of a different shade to how he was before when he was at Tottenham.
2: I think the experience at PSG will help for sure. And Nasser Al-Khalifi, Luis Campos and others at PSG can be political, can be divided, I think it's fair to say. So if you're going to compare Chelsea's ownership to PSG, then it's different. But the learning from being in a dressing room full of egos, a dressing room that Mbappe claims anyway, is divided. And having that structure where decisions also at PSG are made by numbers and by consultants and by external voices, all of that may help. And obviously Pochettino knew what he was walking into. So this is another really important point that we know that the Chelsea ownership group now and even under Abramovich, approached Pochettino. So this is actually the third time that he's had an opportunity at Chelsea. That's not to say that he was a front runner above Graham Potter, but he was under consideration. And for Pochettino, it wasn't right the previous two times, and now it is, which means that he's bought into the model And I think that's highly significant. So then what's he learned from PSG? Probably not to allow player power, but also he said in his first press conference, and it's been reiterated on this tour as well, that there's elements that have improved him from PSG and made him not only a better manager, but a better person. And he hasn't yet elaborated on what those qualities are, but my sense is humility will be one of them. And the second key point, I think, is just being firm, but fair. And I know that sounds really basic for a manager, but when you're in a dressing room with a Neymar, an Mbappe, a Messi, and Chelsea have obviously had big characters as well in the past. Some of them have now left the club. It isn't as easy as you think as a new manager, because if those in the dressing room feel they've been there longer they're more powerful and in Chelsea's case the manager's not going to stay then why bother changing and I think Manchester United have had this up until Eric ten Haag and I think Chelsea have had this in the last 12 months or so up now hopefully until Pochettino and if all goes according to plan then the learnings from PSG will help him carry that authority through win everyone's respect unite everyone and with that if everyone's united results should come
1: so I think one of the, the questions that, that we've kind of bantered about ourselves is around, you know, the fact that we're a month or a little less than a month away from Liverpool, right? And Liverpool coming off of a relatively poor season, not as poor as Chelsea's season, obviously. What can happen in a month with an incomplete squad uh, during preseason, I think, is, is everyone's question. Do you have a theory of, of what he's trying to do on the tour and, and what – we might expect to see in a month's time.
2: This is my theory, but I want you guys to contradict it if it's Nick entirely has no wrong. no problem contradicting I want you to shout it down if it's nonsense. The challenge is this. The back three is best for Chelsea's defence, and that obviously was something that Potter tried. But we know that Pochettino plays a 4-2-3-1. The 3-1 part of the 4-2-3-1 is the best for Chelsea's front line. So the balance Pochettino in terms of what's he going to do in the strategy is how do you get Chelsea scoring? Number one priority. How do you get Chelsea unified? And how in getting everyone unified, do you keep everyone happy? And prior to Wesley Fofana's unfortunate injury, and I'm gutted for him, you would have said keeping everyone happy means building from the back. So quite clearly, three centre-backs means that Colwell's going to get game time. Just
1: play with 12 men. then <laughs> obviously, that's how you get this done.
2: So he should play a 5-2-3-1. <laughs> Which comes back to that gag about allegedly the ownership group accidentally putting an extra number on a tactics board when they were looking at formations. So why not? Let's be novel. Let's have an extra player. But I think this is the challenge because not everyone's going to be happy. So Pochettino's first task is open-door policy, keep everyone happy. Then he has to look at senior players... And work out which ones are going to be near automatic starters because there's no European football, so there has to be a consistency of selection. Much better you have momentum if you're winning than start rotating all of the time because Chelsea will not have as many games. And then, of course, the secondary task is what do you do with all of these young players that maybe are only here for pre-season, that might be loaned out, that you value and you want to keep, but are not going to be in your starting eleven. So then, when I think about How he does all of that, it's a mammoth task, as you say, between now and the first game of the season. But if I build it from the back, I say three centre-backs, obviously. And by the way, that's also really good for Rhys James and for Ben Chilwell. But that's not his formation. So then I start to think, how do you keep Silver happy or Colwell happy? And if Fafana was fit, that would have been a factor. Now, I think that it's a bit easier to pick that back line, unfortunately for Wesley Fafana, If they get Caicedo, it's very easy to then say it's going to be Enzo and Caicedo, and then you guys are going to have to pick the front line, not me, because I don't have a clue. Some will be team Sterling. Some will be team Mudrick. Some will say that Nonny should be in there. And Kunku obviously is likely to play behind a lead striker, but could technically lead the line. And many fans will want to see Nico Jackson lead the line. Some will say a fit Broyer deserves an opportunity. And I'm sure fans listening will also make an argument. Neither of them should be leading the line. And there has to be another new striker coming in. So I can't work out the front line. And I think that that's a bit of a challenge.
1: This is a question that I put in here uh, late into the script, but uh, we were talking with friend of the pod, Ollie Glanville about uh, just the amount of goals that Chelsea scored the last time that we made top four, which was in the mid seventies last year, we scored 38 league goals, right? So that's a huge gap between uh, where we used to be and now where we need to get back to where did the goals come from this year? I mean, assuming you don't sign Mbappe tomorrow, where where do the goals come oh, from? they are
2: signing Mbappe tomorrow. Did I forget to tell you that?
1: <laughs> Late breaking news here on the London is Blue podcast. Well, again,
2: we we recorded this in,
0: you know, that that would be the future. So we would have recorded it and it would have been been announced by the time that this is released. So if it does happen, that is the most magical thing that's ever happened on this podcast. Can
1: we math it? Can we math the goals together? I mean, it... It would seem to me like you're going to need 10 to 15 from Nkunku. You're going to need Sterling to overperform his nine last year. You'll need something, some combination of 10 or 15 from Broyer or Jackson. And then whatever kind of comes from Matawake and Mudric and, you know, the rest of the, the team is kind of maybe how you get there. But, I mean, that's, that's a significant overperformance from, from where we were.
0: But think about, you know, we, we mentioned Reese James and Ben Chilwell are there both healthy, both starting the season, getting an opportunity. I think back a couple of seasons ago.
1: Are they both healthy or is only one of them healthy?
0: Both of them being healthy enough to contribute. We know that it was precautionary, or precautionary for Reese to stay back a little bit. But you know, those two individually could contribute 10 goals together, maybe more depending upon how the system sets up. They can contribute in terms of assists as well. So I think from even just the defense, you could look at, 10 to 14 goals potentially coming from that part of the pitch as well. So I think there's, there's definitely a way to ladder up to the number that you're looking for, and it doesn't necessarily have to be with people who are coming outside. It's, I think, maybe improving the efficiency of the players who are here currently.
2: This is what I think. And obviously, I'm on a Chelsea podcast, so I'm going to be slightly optimistic. And people might be listening and saying... You don't, you don't oh, have no. to be. <laughs> well, I don't want to be overly pessimistic. Hey, well, Nick would you
0: get disinvited from the show if that was the case. I mean,
2: we're seeing so many new people that it's very difficult to understand how quickly they'll take to the Premier League. So you have to look at the qualities and what they've got on paper and what they're capable of, and they might get there this season, they might get there next season. But that said, Nkunku for me is a double figures goal scorer in his first season in the Premier League. And even though, positionally and tactically he may have to adapt a little bit compared to at Leipzig. I think that he's well capable of getting 10 goals and if he gets going as you showed in the Bundesliga maybe more because people look at the tally from last season I think it was 16 but it was only about 25 games because he was injured for much of the season so that's a really strong ratio so let's say he plays maybe not the case but 38 games just for the sake of it 10 goals is not actually a particularly high tally but you take that then again if you say the same for whoever your lead striker is we'll call it Nico Jackson give him 10 goals that's 20 we're not at a massive number at the moment but I think what Chelsea are looking for is five or six players to get between seven and 15 goals, which is kind of what Arsenal did last season when you look at the likes of Jesus, Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard, and so on. So I think that Nkunku will be double figures. I think that Nico Jackson, or whoever predominantly leads the line, can get into double figures Mbappe when he signs, or whoever the new signing has we, <laughs> we are going to stop saying that now. I meant Neymar anyway. <laughs> but The goals behind, as you say, are far more interesting, in my opinion. So can Mudrick, for example, get seven goals, seven assists, that type of thing? Can Reese James get six or seven goals? Can he get somewhere in the region of the same number of assists? Because then you start saying all these people chipping in with seven to ten goals, five or six players at the club that can get in that ballpark add a few from behind from defence, and maybe it's not 70 goals, but it will be somewhere close at that point to 60. And usually if you get 60 goals, you would have around 60 points, which isn't quite good enough for Champions League football, but it's a step forwards. And then if one player from that gets going you are suddenly at 70 goals, 70 points, and then you're challenging for top four. And it feels
0: like it's a more sustainable way to build heading into the season because we know one of the things that wasn't a deficiency for Chelsea last season was actually the defense throughout the majority of the campaign actually was decent enough. It just was a scoring issue. So if you can continue to maintain the defense while adding in the goals, you actually are getting closer to being the the truly stable side you need to be to maintain a momentum, maintain an upward trajectory for this campaign.
2: Yeah, I think the defense was bizarre in some ways because statistically it was fine, but every game or other game, there was one error or one moment where you thought, okay, there's a problem here or it's sloppy. And sometimes it was Kepa who oscillated between world-class save and world-class error. And other times it was just a lapse of judgment from a young player. But if you actually look at the number of goals conceded, it was fine. So I would rather be Chelsea than Spurs because with Tottenham, they were a defensive shambles and heavily reliant, therefore, on the goals from Kane. And from Chelsea's point of view, they couldn't take big chances, but they were creating those chances. I think back, for example, to the Champions League and the first leg against Dortmund. Played well, but couldn't put the ball in the back of the net. They ended up going through, but that's one example of many, many games where they constantly looked like a threat and missed big chances. And this is why I would rather be Chelsea than Spurs, because if Chelsea had one player, Harry Kane, then that is 20 plus goals, maybe even 30. And even with this last season that they've had, that one player, that one difference, those extra 30 goals, and they rock it up the table. Whereas from Tottenham's point of view, they've got to create a whole new style under a manager that's completely different to Antonio Conte. They've got to sort out their defensive shambles and they still might lose Harry Kane. So I think that Chelsea have got the bones. It's just a case of have they got the chemistry, the leadership, and that one focal point that can actually put the ball in the back of the net week after week.
1: And it's not just statistics either because there were plenty of games last year where Chelsea played well enough to win a match right when the ball doesn't go in the back of the net it affects you mentally mm. it affects the team's morale and despite how well you play one error can undo you right at that point if you're not scoring any goals so I, you know if the team does get rolling if they do come out in the first game against Liverpool and put a goal or two in the back of the net I think there's just something mentally that has to click for this team to get going and especially a young team that could thrive off of that confidence, too. I mean, I, I'm not typically the optimist on this pod, but I have, to, I have to imagine that in any team, whether you have Diego Costa or Eden Hazard or you know, in Kunku, if if you see one person really start to lead the line and, and get it going, the rest of the team will thrive off of that.
2: Yeah, and I think that if you go back to last preseason, there were too many players out the door. There were too many players mentally checked out. And this, again, is why Pochettino is looking for chemistry, because when one player succeeds, you celebrate that and it breeds momentum. And this perhaps is why having a fresh face like an Nkunku who could just light it up or somebody even perhaps that's a little bit less proven like an Andre Santos might just be that kind of hungry non-Chelsea culture influence type of person that can bring the group together. And it can happen in pre-season. So if you go back a year, 4-0 loss to Arsenal. Terrible. And everybody's mentality was destroyed by that. And it was a downward curve. And bizarrely, that result was kind of the end of Thomas Tuchel because of the demeanour that he put on after that. And I think... We
1: were there for that press conference. It was, it was tough.
2: Yeah, it was tough. And it was a sign of a frustrated manager in a frustrated dressing room with a bunch of players that either didn't want to be at Chelsea or did but were unhappy with where things were. So that's why I mention a Santos or someone like that. Go out and score a Worldie against Wrexham or get Caicedo on the week that you're playing Brighton and then beat them 4-0 because this type of thing even though it seems little. Sounds
1: great. We'll we'll sign for that. Yeah, it it, can build
0: momentum. Look, it's Philadelphia. It's a city that likes to show up and go big. It's a halftime reveal, team switch, WWE (laughs) style, comes out, absolute heel move. It would be the best thing ever. That is the way it needs to get announced.
2: (laughs) I mean, Mudrik was unveiled halftime, Ukrainian flag, parade. So why not?
1: Well, I think we need you doing the events now. I mean, that's that's what it sounds like. <laughs> um, and and you can work on Mbappe's while you're at it. That, that would be great.
2: All right. I'm going to quickly interrupt Ben Jacobs, Dan, and Nick to say we are going to go to another ad break. Thank you so much to our sponsors. They help us do everything we do. They help us go on these tours. They help us make the show. They help us do everything. So shout out to them, and we'll be right back.
1: So, transitioning to the defense, right? Because we have now this maybe problem, maybe not problem with, with Fafana um, obviously being out for the year and you know going from too many center backs to now the right amount of center backs, maybe not your chosen personnel if you're a big Fafana fan. But you have Trev, Tiago Silva, uh, Batty Shield, and Colwell. Obviously, Batty Shields still hurt, and we'll figure out kind of what that injury looks like. What are your thoughts on if Chelsea should replenish in defense this season or if they should look – kind of long-term maybe next season if, if Thiago Silva retires or something like that. What's your thought on the balance that they have to have?
2: Balance is the key word because obviously it's all very well having a target like Gehi or others of that ilk. And when you go to them, they're going to say, am I playing? And you've only got two centre-backs. And if you want to keep Levi Colwell, then he expects to be one of those two centre-backs. And whether rightly or wrongly, the player will be pushing for that throughout pre-season. And I think that Chelsea know this. And because, as you say, Badi Ashiel is recovering from injury, Wesley Fofana, unfortunately, has got that ruptured ACL, you almost have to give Colwell the chance, and he deserves it because of what he did at Brighton and what he did at the under-21 Euros. Then you would expect that silver's going to be in there because of the leadership and the quality and the fact that regardless of his age, any game where he's fit, he's going to offer something. But you've got to think long-term, like you say. So... I feel like Chelsea right now, if they're short-termists, want a centre-back that is going to be a squad player and is going to be happy being a squad player. And that means you either buy young, but again, you've got a lot of young centre-backs, or you go a little bit left field. And I look, for example, at Manchester United, who have got Johnny Evans to sign a short-term contract for pre-season. I look at players out there like Max Kilman, or, dare I say, and by the way, there's no Chelsea interest, Harry Maguire. Don't do
1: it. Don't do it, Ben. Sorry for
0: saying you Harry went, Maguire. You went from the highs
1: of Mbappe and the
2: lows
0: of <laughs> Maguire. You're really the the chasm that you've created in this one first appearance is. Quite I said massive. not
2: interested though. I mentioned the name, which was not wise, but I did say not interested. But I do think that that's what intrigues me, because if you look at the fit now, it might be a loan deal. It might be an experienced centre back. It might be what Pochettino wants, which is proven Premier League quality. But if you buy Gehi, if you buy somebody that is a starting Premier League centre-back, even Maguire, that type of player, is going to say, it's game time or nothing. So this is what Chelsea have to balance because the last thing you want to do is promise to a new centre-back game time and then find that your Badia Shields, when fit, your Colwells start turning around and saying, well, now we're not happy. And actually really feel for Badia Shield because if Fafana was fit, you would say, he's got a great chance of starting. And obviously with Levi Colwell, he is probably going to get an opportunity. And by the way, whatever the selection is, I still think Pochettino's got no problem if he needs to play two left-sided centre-backs, which means that when you look at the dynamic, it doesn't really matter what side they traditionally play on in this formation. I think he's quite happy to play two left-sided or two right-sided ones. So when I sort of add it all up, you see the desire to man-manage Colwell. You see the desire to bring in a new centre-back, which I think is legitimate because of the injury to Fafana. You see Silva, who's got leadership, and will play, in my opinion, at least 20 of the 38 games so Badia shield must be sitting there thinking I was brilliant, but Koulibaly made the Champions League squad, so then I played less Premier League time because we were preparing for Dortmund followed by Real Madrid then he comes back in and again does well, he's been outstanding in training, he gets injured and now suddenly he's probably thinking Colwell's above me Fafano and Fit is above me, Silver's above me, and Chalibur's thinking the same thing. And this is unfortunately the challenge of having such a large squad. So I think Chelsea will sign another centre back. I don't think that they see it as so urgent but because of the injury to Fafana if they can get the right name at the right price that has the right mentality and it's that last point that's important that fits into the squad and is not too demanding I think they'll move and Gehi is one target for sure but I think there'll be others that tick that box of squad rather than starters because of the Colwell situation and because of the fact that I think Silva going to get game time.
0: So as we kind of round out the conversation, there is a lot of news we're talking about that is about today and what's happening over the next couple of weeks. But one of the long term things that the ownership group had committed to as acquiring the club is the revitalization of Stamford mm-hmm. Bridge, giving the team a new ground. As of this morning, there was the announcement that the Stoll ground is going to be acquired by the club, which is a major first step in moving and not necessarily moving Chelsea away, but moving towards a place where in the time in the future where Chelsea will be playing at a revitalized Stanford bridge. What are you, your understanding? You know, maybe from an understanding of like what, how that impacts it, how is that affecting their timetable? What's the impact of this? And for those who don't know, like the stole ground is directly next to Stanford bridge. So it is not like it is a, you know, you, you fall it's, into it. It's
1: the one acre lot to the left. If you're looking at like the front mm-hmm. entrance, the Britannia gate,
2: It's just highly significant because it's space, it's progress. And obviously, we should point out at the time we're recording this, there's still all kinds of consultation. There's all kinds of engagement with residents. And as the whole process goes forwards, supporters as well. So nothing is locked in. But when the takeover happened and they were pitching to Rain Group, all of the prospective owners of Chelsea had to pitch what they were going to do with A stadium redevelopment. And this was something that Abramovich made absolutely clear. If you want this football club from day one before you're even in, you've got to put plans together. And you can't do that overnight. But clearly at Boley are blessed because one of the board members, Johnny Goldstein, is effectively a property developer and has got huge experience in this domain and is leading the Planning the consultation, and then Bowley himself had obviously been part of the driving force behind the Dodger Stadium renovation. So it's funny because when people look at the ownership group, they're judging them on Bowley when he was sporting director or who are we signing. And we've perhaps not seen as much of the skill set and the ambition and the diversity of skill set within the broader group. But as the multi club model builds and as the stadium redevelopment happens, you start to understand that these are. Experts in a lot of different fields, and they can move decisively and innovatively and ambitiously. And now we're seeing that in the multi club model. So, coming back to the stadium, Johnny Goldstein, along with others, will lead first on the planning process, and there'll be further consultation, as I understand it, with the fan groups too, because If you stick with the Stamford Bridge site, which has always been the priority, I know we've heard at times some discussions over Earl's Court, but that was kind of denied that planning permission had been put in. So Stamford Bridge is the identity of Chelsea, is where they want to stay. So then effectively you have two options off the back of this should things progress. Number one is that you knock down the stadium and then you rebuild a brand new one and you have a bit more space to do so and you have buy-in from all of the local residents. Number two is that you do phase redevelopment of Stamford Bridge, which would still allow Chelsea at reduced capacity to keep their home, but maybe doesn't fit with either the desire of the supporters or the ownership group based upon the plans put forwards. So the next step to understand is obviously that. What is the pro of knocking down Stamford Bridge? Probably a more innovative, modern stadium that, allows for a better fan experience and non-football income. What is the downside? It ultimately requires Chelsea to find a new temporary home. And stadiums take time to be built. So you have to do what Spurs did, and they went to Wembley, but now people are not moaning about Wembley, even though they were for many years. They're talking about the fantastic new stadium. So that's effectively number one. Or number two is you say, we just want to keep playing in Stamford Bridge, but we need to develop it bit by bit by bit. And the phase redevelopment may sound clean, because you don't have to find a new home, but it's slow. And that's the kind of major con there. So I think talking to sources, but it's my opinion, and obviously there's no unity at this point, that the preference would be to knock down Stamford Bridge to find a new home and to build a brand new stadium on the same site. That is my own personal opinion, talking to some sources, but it's not definitive because none of these sources are going to do anything until one they've got concrete plans for all options and two, they've spoken to the supporters and the supporters might change their mind. The plans might change their mind as well. But uh, I think if you were only looking at the end goal, so not the process, but only the end goal of how can we get the best stadium, the most innovative stadium and, in doing so, give Chelsea fans a fantastic matchday experience, then I think knock it down and rebuild on the site is, in my opinion, the most likely approach. But that is just my opinion.
1: And from what we understood in the previous iteration, right, the stadium that was put forward in 2018, the the redevelopment plans, the stole uh, land is only one part of the puzzle, right? Because the train... On the other side of Stamford Bridge is the other sort of scenario that you have to work through. Not only the tube station and where the traffic enters and exits and all that sort of stuff, which is, you know, I think if you've been on a match day, you know it can get a little congested when everyone's rushing out, but it's it's where the actual National Rail Services line goes on the other side. And so uh, any updates on on what they might do with that? If, if indeed, you know, we're talking months from now, the STOL agreement is, is made, what they might do on the other side?
2: Yeah, I think it's just being investigated. And I think they have to, as you say, understand where they can actually extend the parameters, both in terms of getting planning permission, but also space. And this is the... Pro, I suppose, of just redeveloping Stamford Bridge as is, because you've got that base and infrastructure inclusive of things like parking and policing access and medical access and hotels and restaurants. Whereas if you knock it down, you're knocking down everything. So as a consequence, when you rebuild it, you're in likelihood rebuilding it with a hotel, with new restaurants. So you're not just building a football stadium, you're building everything. And in the meantime, you've got to find another home. And a stadium takes seasons, not just one season. And this is how football's changed, because my club's Leicester. And when Leicester moved from the old Filbert Street to a new stadium, the King Power Stadium, they're practically next to each other. King Power Stadium seemingly came up overnight... It obviously didn't in practice, but it was tactically done to have the minimum disruption. But when you're building in London and when you're building more than just a stadium and when you're building a super stadium effectively, you have to expand in terms of your thinking. And when they draw these designs, they're going to need to know that they've got the space and they're going to need to know that they've also got the infrastructure in place and that includes residents' permission. So on the other side, I think it's a little bit more problematic. But the fact that they've got part of the puzzle in place is highly significant because it shows you that the preference in terms of exploration is ultimately to stay where they are. And if they don't stay where they are, then they're kind of not Chelsea without the correct position and the correct permissions. So first of all, they have to move were they to do that and still be allowed to with the correct permissions, and then they have to find the position of where that stadium would be. And it's not easy just to find a new site that has the identity of Chelsea. So I think they'll stay at Stamford Bridge, but this is a long, long process. That's the last thing I would say, that when you get a bit of news on the stadium, maybe fans think, brilliant, we're gonna get a new stadium. I think the new stadium, from what I hear, will be 2029 or 2030. So we're still quite a long way off going from paper or planning to actually bulldozers, if you like.
0: Well, it'd be nice because I'll give them time to make sure that the museum space is expanded to fit additional Premier League and <laughs> Champions, League, Champions League trophies in the in, at Stanford Bridge or the rebuilt Stanford Bridge at that time. But I think this is going to wrap up uh, the first cap for Ben Jacobs, sports broadcaster on the London's Blue podcast, we want to thank you for making some time when you were here in Raleigh. And I imagine we're going to bump into you quite regularly over the next uh, week and a half on your American journeys.
2: Look forward to it, and good luck to Chelsea during preseason. I'll be expecting an actual cap, a Londoners Blue cap sent in the post. Done. We'll make it happen. <laughs> All right, that's the end of this episode of the London's Blue podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we we'll catch you next time. But until then blue flag flying high.